Welcome to the Future of Internal Communication podcast. I'm Jen Sproul, CEO of the Institute of Internal Communication. Our organisations face an onslaught of challenges across the social, economic, political and environmental spectrum. The systems we've used to support 21st century ways of life are weakening. The way we work requires dramatic transformation in response to these challenges. Internal communication is a crucial function that helps organisations achieve lasting change. This podcast explores the intersection between internal communication and the future of work. Every conversation is curated to help internal communicators better understand the risks and leverage opportunity. We really hope you enjoy listening. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Future of Internal Communication podcast. I'm your co-host Kat Barnard and as ever I am joined by Jen Sproul, Chief Executive of the Institute of Internal Communication and Dominic Waters, our resident leadership communication expert. Today we have another special guest for you. His name is Neil Carberry and he is Chief Executive of the Recruitment and Employment Confederation. Tiny bit of a weird story but I always love these stories. Neil and I met randomly, well not randomly, but we met in a pub last summer and immediately got into quite a deep conversation about the state of the UK labour market and I guess the implications of Brexit, the implications of the pandemic and what we both felt about the future of work. So almost immediately I wanted to bring him on to the podcast to share his ideas with you all. Just a tiny bit of background about Neil. Neil has been the chief exec of the REC since the summer of 2018, prior to which he was uh, managing director at the CBI, leading the CBI's work on the labour market, skills, energy and infrastructure. Um, He's been integrally involved in the staffing arena for, gosh, uh, 23, 24 years, late 90s and so is expertly placed to give us an informed view of the labour market and how it's shifting and changing, which, of course, plays into the opportunity spot for internal communication when so many internal communicators these days are charged with enhancing employee experience. So, Neil, welcome. Well, thank you very much, Kat. It's a pleasure to join you. Thank you for coming. I feel like I cannot possibly do um, a just job of describing what the REC does. So first question really over to you. Could you could you tell our listeners what the REC does and what kind of influence that has in the staffing arena? So I think listeners probably best understand the REC as a trade association for recruitment, staffing and search companies. And we've got about 3,200 corporate members, but we've also got a load of individual members because as well as being the trade association, we're also a professional body. So we are an off-call regulated uh, uh, qualifications examiner and uh, we provide a range of professional development for individual recruiters, which is incredibly important because recruitment and staffing as a sector it is a professional service. You know, the real value is in the advice that 
firms and individual professionals offer to clients and candidates. It's not just uh, matching and dispatching as maybe it was back in the days of sort of 25, 30, 35 years ago. So as a body, we are responsible basically for doing three things. One is standards in the industry. We've got a professional standards committee that holds members to account. The second is making sure that we are really bold in defense of the industry and explaining what the industry does. And we're talking about a professional services sector that's bigger than the law in the UK and bigger than accountancy, but nobody knows that or thinks that. So part of our job is to tell that story. But the other bit is just to help recruiters make the best of what they do. And we talk about making great work happen as the purpose of the REC. And one of the ways we do that is we help recruiters to to serve uh, companies better. What's interesting about the link with internal comms there is recruitment and retention and recruitment and engagement are two sides of the same coin. So there's a real issue when we think about how we want to treat staff, how we want to engage staff, um, the kind of messages that recruiters are developing to try and draw people in are the same messages, essentially, that you want to hold on to people. And my background, as you know, Kat, is in industrial relations and employment relations. That is why I was very much the CBI's point man for relations with the trade unions. And so that piece around how do we drive productivity through employee engagement is very close to my heart personally as well. Neil, um, thank you very much for describing that. I was interested that Kat said that when you met, you started talking about the, the state of the UK labour market. Because for that outside observer, I suppose, it looks incredibly confusing since COVID. We've had working from home and working from pub in some cases. We've had people going and, and talking about quite quitting with lots of phrases like that. And people over 50 apparently are leaving the workforce. And then to, recently we've had I think one of your former colleagues, perhaps from the CBI, saying that secretly every boss wants everybody to be in the office all the time, but they dare not say that. So it'd be great to get a flavour from you of what you think are some of the key changes we've had in the labour market since COVID. So Carberry's iron law of the British labour market, right? There will always be 101 opinions and a new zeitgeisty phrase, right? Quiet quitting is defined as doing your proper hours and doing your job and not doing any more. Well, that's just a moderately engaged employee in in most people's thinking. Um, The way to think about the UK labour market is that for 40 or 50 years, the labour supply has been consistently expansionary. And now part of that Yes, absolutely, was free movement um, initially in the 70s, but then obviously post the 2004 enlargement, you know, a million people coming into the UK from new member states of the European Union. But that's actually a small part of it. The big part of it is that the baby boomers are just an enormous generation. And my favourite stat that everyone gets is that there were 50% more babies born in Britain in 1964 than in 1977. Now, if you start to play that through, and then you think of some of the things that we've done over the decade before the pandemic, we got rid of the statutory retirement age. So, you know, people were working longer. We had a good trend of people not retiring as early. Now, part of that was forced because defined benefit pensions ebbed away, but some part of that was choice. So we what we had was an expansionary labor force really for 40 years up to the hit of the pandemic. And what the pandemic did is twofold. One, it happened at the same time as Brexit. So 
it's kind of difficult to untangle, but a bit of the drop of supply is just fewer people coming in from Eastern Europe. But I think the the other thing that happened is because of the pandemic, more people who were here who had settled status left uh, because they went, you know, if you're on your own in the UK and the pandemic strikes, does it make sense to go back to Poland? I think some people did. Did they come back? Well, there's plenty of demand in Poland and in Germany. And you know, it's worth remembering that these shortages are happening everywhere. But also, I think a lot of people who maybe extended their working lives who or who were beginning to think saw the pandemic as a bit of a decision point. So there was a, a slight con- a contraction in the domestic labour force was already happening before the pandemic. It's happening a bit more because of the pandemic. And then on top of the pandemic, you've got all this these issues about NHS backlogs, which means there are more people off work sick. The totality is there are just there are still fewer hours being worked in the labour market now than there were in February 2020. So there is less labour supply. Now, if you're a corporate seeing a recovery, you're scrambling for that. And that's where you get to this kind of confusing picture you referenced on, which is businesses are under pressure. You know, growth is not great, could be better. I'm an optimist about the British economy. But even though businesses are under pressure, they're still scrabbling for resources. And what that's doing, of course, is it's leading to a gentle shift in the power balance between companies and employees. And you see that play out through things like hybrid working. Because, you know, whatever, I suspect it was Digby Jones who said, every boss wanting people back. I think that things, the debate about hybrid, for instance, is a classic example of how you trying to work out how you can meet your workforce halfway, you know, control their commuting costs in a time when uh, inflation ticket prices are high, get them into the office for the time that you need them. I think it requires employers to be thinking a bit more like employers and very clearly about what do we need that's non-negotiable and what can we give. I think that's really interesting to hear you say that that last piece, Neil, because, you know, clearly there are frictions in the labour market now. And I would be keen to, in a moment, just dive into your take on, you know, the rising tide of industrial action. But just on that point that you have mentioned, um, somebody sent me a clip this week which was a recording of a panel discussion that took place at the World Economic Forum Davos earlier in the month. And the chief executive of Vimeo was asked for her opinion. And she gave some really interesting ideas around her view, which I completely uh, support and endorse, that actually it's on leaders to up their ante and to rethink what they need to do as leaders to encourage and promote kind of intra-workforce harmony, if you will. So, you know, organisations can no longer take the same approach to employment as they were able to do. And that obviously requires all of us that hold leadership positions to think differently and thinking differently is time consuming and it requires us to experiment with new habits and behaviours. And of course, when you're under pressure, it's kind of human instinct to fall back on entrenched habits. So there's friction points there. But um, I know we were talking just before we came on air about, you know, events in the labour market this week and, and, and this rising tide of industrial action. Any sort of highlights, insights that you have to share with us on that? 
So I'm going to start with a bit of self-criticism and then I'll work to criticizing some other people once I've criticized us in the, in the HR and industrial relations side. I think as an HR community, and I say this as a fellow of the CIPD, we have allowed over 20 or 30 years ourselves to become dominated with a certain way of thinking about how people are engaged in organizations. It's very individualized, a very HR, human resources management focused you know it's all about the process what's the effort bargain for the individual what's the employee value proposition uh, it's an individualized process where you know we, it's a real kind of process management approach um, and I think that has some strengths but it there's a couple of bits that I think it has challenges with one is it's all about trying to align employees with the organization's goals. That's fine, but aligning people around goals is a two-way process. So you get a lot of this discussion now about purpose in organizations, especially with younger employees, but it's not exclusively younger employees. I tend to the view that younger employees are just a bit bolder about telling you why you're wrong. There's a piece around you know, what's our impact as an organization and why am I buying into this that potentially we haven't we haven't allowed to be negotiable enough as leaders and as HR leaders. So, you know, I, I said earlier, I'm an employment relations guy. I take the view that organizations have goals and people have goals and the art of employee relations is to work out how they mesh together. And that's a comms process and it's a managed comms process, which is what makes it relevant to internal comms professionals. In doing that, part of that is how do we as leaders acknowledge we have more stakeholders than just the shareholder and just shareholder value as a goal. And we're beginning to see some big changes happening in that regard. And I think HR needs to understand and move with comms colleagues to support a different conversation with um, with staff. So ESG is a great example, and ESG is really well-defined on the E and the G and less well-defined on the S. I mean, the E is increasingly about net zero. The G is increasingly about clarity and openness in decision-making. The S actually should primarily be about workforce, rather uh, as the biggest group of people a company has impact on. We're already seeing cost of capital lowering for those companies who have ESG in the right space. Farsighted leaders should be thinking about how do I not follow my investors, but actually lead a little bit? How do I set out the battlefield that we are working with and then what the plan is to engage? And a classic example of this you know, going to what Dom said earlier is hybrid working. So in every business in the country, I'm going to hypothesize, you've got a bunch of people, which may or may not include the chief exec, although I have to admit in the REC, it does include the chief exec, whose preferred way of working is to be in the office. And you've got a bunch of people who frankly never want to come back to the office again and think you're not trusting them by asking them to come back. And then you've got a bunch of people in the middle who are kind of even-handed and want a bit of leadership, but also want to be listened to. And the art there is not to say everyone has to come back or everyone's at home. The art is to say, look, this is what, across the collective of the needs of the business and the collective of the staff, works for us in our environment as a business. 
And that is classic collective employee relations. And what we've learned over the last few weeks, and I was mentioning before we came on the Spotify uh, Sacked 600 playlist, and Spotify, along with a large number of other tech companies have learned that they've got employee relations, is that these collective employee relations exist in every company, whether or not they're unionized. Unions are just a channel, and where they exist, you know, managing that is, a, is really important. But in non-unionized organizations, that space for that collective debate really, really matters as well, because that's the only place you're going to find innovation, productivity, and actually people starting to align around purpose. You mentioned about the unions. I just wanted to talk briefly about that, because what I've been reading recently is commentators saying that the unions, particularly those in the, in the spotlight at the moment because of industrial action, are recognizing this fact that there are more stakeholders involved in organizations. They're changing their language so that they're talking about a broad range of stakeholders that organizations have to cater for. Uh, what's, your, what's your take on that and the role of unions in helping that transition? So, I mean, I'm an arch environmentalist when it comes to employee relations. The world is different according to which organization you are in and which union you have and the starting point. I draw two conclusions from where we are in the UK right now. One is there are loads of disputes in the private sector, loads and loads. What distinguishes them from disputes in the public sector and what I'd call the quasi-public sector, things like the railways, is that they're settling. Why are they settling? Because disputes right now are about pay. And actually pay, most leaders in the private sector can see that inflation is 10%. And typically a well-handled negotiation can get you to a place where you get a, a rate that unions will settle on that doesn't embed accelerating inflation. And that's the critical thing to understand. Most union leaders, most of the time, are primarily concerned by what their members want. And what their members want is the dispute to settle. So the, the enlightened employer going into that discussion firstly needs to work out what the situation with the union you're working with is, because I think some are some regional officers, some union leaders are a bit more ideological than that, and clearly there's an agenda in bits, uh, bits of the public sector. But you then have to work out what's the exit strategy for the other side of the table. And this is where government makes a mistake, because I think that the strike that is in government ministers' heads whenever they think about strikes is an A485, it's a minor strike. But the challenge for that is Thatcher always knew the mines were going to close. The difference is you need the nurses to come back to work. You need the teachers to come back to work. The only option, ultimately, is a settlement. So your goal needs to be swift path to settlement and the thing that i i don't quite see happening in the public sector that needs to happen and it would be my advice to any private sector company is how do we broaden the dispute and what i mean by that is okay you want nine percent this year what are you going to give me if i give you nine percent what reorganization what structure what goals because i can do nine percent but it has to be a sustainable 9%. And Dom, that's where your thing about companies having under other pressures really comes in. Because I think unions do understand co corporates are under pressure. They understand that this is difficult, 
but with goodwill, it's resolvable. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing private sector disputes settle. I think what's so interesting about that is what, what you've highlighted, which I don't think the media necessarily does any public service on, is that in any of these settlements, it is about negotiating compromise. And I think the way that our media, for the most part, portrays these kind of matters is in a very binary way where there are either winners or losers. And actually, it's easy for us to overlook the fact that in any relationship, we are continuously compromising and settling and, you know, there are no absolutes. And I think that's a really powerful message for us all to reflect on today. Because as you know, our work is to advise on the future of work. And it's very clear that the kind of challenges that all organisations face over the course of the next five to 10 years are complex and highly interconnected. Um, If I was to ask you, Neil, to gaze into your crystal ball, What do you think the key challenges and opportunities are in the next few years? So I think there there are a couple that I'd identify. Now, I'm a fundamental optimist about work, generally. Mm -hmm. I think the robots, and my good friend Rob McCargo at PwC says the robots aren't here to take your jobs. They're here to get rid of the boring bits of them. Mm. And I think that is right. So we need to see the technological advances that are coming down the track less as uh, existential threats than as transitional issues. I'll give you a great example of that, right? I like to stand in front of audiences and ask people how many typists they have in their organization. And the answer typically is, well, none. And I sort of go, well, that's not true, is it? I would argue that you have more typists in your organization now than you've ever had. And, you know, I've got in my left hand the device on which I am a typist for the REC. You know, we're carrying around mobile phones, tablets, laptops, and we we understand that tasks reshape into jobs. And we're really good at getting the humans to do the human stuff and then using the technology to use the technology stuff. And you go right back to the Industrial Revolution. That's what we've always done. The difference this time is it's just going to be a it's the, the changes are going to be quicker and over on a much shorter wavelength. So for companies, it's how you manage people through that process of transition. Reskilling, uh, in some cases, moving into different employers and different fields, is going to be really important. But very fundamentally viewing this as an issue of flow rather than an issue of the stock of employment. That's why I do think labor supply is still an issue even though we're seeing big change. Then the second bit about all of this is to try and bust out of the the Harvard Business Review political bubble on how people will work. And what I mean by that is the world is not going to be 30 million people in the UK labour market, each working as limited company contractors with 15 or 16 clients. That is not the life that most people want to live. I'm reminded of a Justin King quote from a CBI President's Committee 
years ago when he was chief executive of Sainsbury's, where he said, you know, government can go and do a cabinet meeting at Rolls-Royce uh, once a quarter if they want, but everyone works for me and for Tesco. And he's right, you know, every, each of the traditional big four supermarkets employs 100,000 people. So there's a there's a, a big piece here about acknowledging what won't change in terms of open-ended contracts still being the dominant form and then acknowledging what will change. There will be more flexible working. There will be more flexible scheduling. There will be more uh, more people working multiple employers, working in different, in different hours and shapes. But creating then a framework for how we do that fairly and safely, this whole thing about the power dynamic in the labor exchange, to borrow quite a geekish term for it, is really important. So good employers thinking about how do we manage our labor input, manage our people for engagement, should be thinking about all the stuff that surrounds people's working life. Great example of this. I once heard Sir Roger Carr talk about this when he was president of the CBI, and he was also chairman of British Gas at the time. And he said, you know, one of the things that struck me was I went to visit British Gas uh, Service Centre, and I sat down with uh, some people who were working in the service centre, and I talked to this woman, and I said, what do you want from British Gas? What will engage you? And she looked me in the eye, and she said, I'd like not to have to make a choice between parking my car at the office and having breakfast with my children. Because the way the thing was set up was that unless you were at the office at half past seven, you weren't getting parked. And these things about people's daily lives are really important. Actually, for government, they're really important. You know, the REC policy team laughs at me because I say, having spent 30 years looking at the British labour market, I'm more and more obsessed with how buses ruin everything. But the truth is, how people get to work childcare infrastructure, how they engage with the workplace, these are all really important to both labour supply and retention. So sensible companies should absolutely be looking at the myriad of different ways people might work for them in the next 10, 15, 20 years, and they will explode and it will change. But start from the principle of the people who are doing that probably still have to get the kids to the school game. They still have to get somewhere. They still have to worry about their mum and dad who might be in a care home or might be living with them and they've got kind of uh, uh, and they've got caring responsibilities. There's a whole range of you know they might have a disability. There's a whole range of ways in which we need not to get carried away with what kind of the tech visionaries want to sell us. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. I feel that we, because we share language with North America, clearly, you know, we are more prone to imbibing the Kool-Aid, the Silicon Valley Kool-Aid, I think. And I was really intrigued. You you said something just then, and I will pass, I will pass the mic in a moment, but I just thought what you said was really interesting about this kind of quasi-prediction that we're all going to be self-employed and all doing piecemeal work. And I take issue with that purely and simply because I've worked for myself since 2000 and I feel very, very strongly that that self-employment, this idea that we're all going to be self-employed with, as you say, 16 or so clients, self-employment is not for the faint-hearted. It is the biggest roller coaster ride that you can go on because 
from the outside, everyone else who's not working on a self-employed basis thinks that you've got it nailed and you carry this emotional burden of continuous, um, well, I guess, precarity, like where's the next invoice going to come from? You know, can I afford to make, I don't know, payroll this month if you're a small business or what have you? The, all of these things, I don't think we have enough open discourse about them. And yet, you know, you've got the business schools teaching entrepreneurship and encouraging young adults who've never actually got the cemented exposure of working a nine to five on a PAYE basis, imagining for themselves that they too can be the next Mark Zuckerberg. And I think we've got a lot that we need to educate our younger, well, have more public discourse over on these topics because Absolutely, as you say, Neil, it's not for everybody. And actually, for the most part, what worries us is, can we spend enough time with our children? How are we going to support our parents as they go into their elderhood when social care is disintegrating? It's the small things that we need to get right first before we can have these grand aspirations of everybody becoming the next Elon. So... Uh, don't, firstly, don't get me started on British business schools and their masters for being an FD rather than actually running a company. It's, that's that's my biggest single soapbox. But that core point about what we are trying to build as organisations, if we've learned anything from the pandemic, it is that just because we can do things doesn't mean we should do things. So if you're thinking about the fragility of supply chains, for instance. Well, labor is a supply chain in many ways. You need to invest in its robustness. And and that is about kind of the position people are in. And that might seem counterintuitive coming from me. I can give you a sense of the recruitment and staffing market in the UK. We put a million people into new permanent jobs every year, but a million temporary works onto site every day. You know, you might expect me to say, whoop, Temporary work is the future. But actually, I think it's a the, the whole thing is an ecosystem. And we need to think of it as an ecosystem. And temporary work exists not to replace permanent work, but to symbiotically work with it. And the reason that staffing agencies exist is because a series of temporary work assignments individually between an individual worker and a provider is a nightmare for the individual worker and there's very little protection. So what what staffing firms are looking for is someone to come to them and probably to work for them pretty consistently over a few years. But actually in doing that, they're working for 20 or 30 different companies. Um, So part of the role of agencies in the temporary space is actually to provide some of that stability. It's interesting, you were saying that you're talking to Antonio Bance soon from the from the TUC on one of these. One of the things that we are trying to craft with the TUC, and Paul Novak, the new GS, is an old friend of mine, is the sense that in agency, what we're trying to do is do the flexibility in the right way and avoid some of the tripwires that maybe some of the gig economy companies fell over. So the Uber case is a classic example of what you were saying earlier, Kat, about the way the media reports things. Um, So the question was, were Uber drivers in London workers? And 
when the case started making its way through the courts, I was absolutely astounded by the public debate because everyone assumed that Uber would probably win, which was bizarre because I read the case documents and I thought they were going to lose. And the other place that thought they were going to lose was Congress House, the TUC. So the CBI and the TUC at that time thought that Uber would lose because they were clearly workers. And yet we allowed ourselves to think that just because it says it in the contract, that these weren't workers, they were self-employed individuals. So there's something here about employer education and about communication and I, and I think a big message from us to whoever wins the next general election is it about enforcement. I think we need to educate our managers that just because they say something is a certain way doesn't mean it is. Neil, I've been listening in for the last time on this podcast for quite a while now. There's so much fascinating stuff that you talk about. And there's so much that aligns to, to, to internal communication and, and what our members are struggling with or, or finding challenges in. And how communication is that sort of binary piece for all of us in, in this. And particularly if you think of the word relations, um, or if you think of the word welfare, you think of all those things, it comes down to communication. IOIC is an organisation, I think we're going to be 75 next year, and started out as the British Association for Industrial Editors, which was really born out of how can we bring back that sense of uh, welfare, discussion, looking after people. And then you sort of jump forward however many decades and, and technology revolution and everything else has changed in that broadcast nature. But as we look today at internal communication, in IOIC, we describe the role of or the purpose of internal communication is to create an informed, connected and purposeful workforce to drive organisational success. And the way that we do that and the skills we do are so much more complex or richer, perhaps, but our context is so, and I think that context piece, getting grappling with that has been something that's really been quite challenging. For example, I spend a lot of time talking to, to internal communicators and they're grappling with things around culture. How do I enable culture? Because if we get culture right and that environment right, then that will help with attrition and that will help with retention. How do we make EVP live? How do I support well-being? How do we drive that sense of purpose and value and understanding to the strategy? And sometimes as well, we have all this technology. You know, should we be using technology to automate? And where does the human come in versus the technology piece? And sometimes I think in the last three years, we've been trying trying to, you talked about hybrid a lot earlier, design into that rather than design into people need and people preference, trying to let technology drive the decision rather than actually, we need to really understand psychology in a much better way than we ever have before, rather than mechanisms of reaching people. And actually, you talked a lot about dialogue, conversing, conversation, but and that's a really difficult place for internal communicators to try and think about how do I coach a leader, a line manager, or do I review a strategy that really feeds into that individualistic, psychological, emotional, human space? So I guess with all the things that you've been talking about, 
from what you've been talking about, what do you think really does present in where we are now, where we're going? Um, and you talked about that future. Where can internal communication be a real solution provider, not just a mechanism for distribution, but brings in those real solutions to the organisations to help deal with, with all the things that we've described on this podcast? So um, the answer to everything is in employee relations theory for me. But the way to think about this, right, the, if, you, if you're from my part of the world, so you're from HR, but you're an employee relations guy, the experience the last 20 years has been profoundly unpopular with the chief executive because, you know, when the reward and Ben person comes, it's, oh, right, great, let's talk about how we're going to sell the pay rise. When the performance guys come, it's, well, let's look at kind of how we're lifting the performance people across the organization when i turn up as your employment relations director it's oh dear what's happening and what bad news are you about to tell me and the reason i i pick up on that is i think like all comms professionals and it is more difficult in an internal situation because of power dynamics there's a little bit of having to tell truth to power about what can be achieved and I say that because your biggest single comms channel is actually what people observe. It's not what you say to them. It's what people see your leaders do, your leaders praise. So you know, part of your job in, in internal comms is aligning all of the channels you've got. And then I think we need to be thinking about internal, you know, direct channels and indirect channels because there's... In most companies now, you have some form of staff council or discussion forums. You've got obviously what you can do in direct comms to to staff. But getting that aligned across the piece, I think, I mean, I'm, a, I'm an RFU uh, rugby referee. And what I always say to the front rows before a game is, right, I, I like to get on with a scrum, right? I'm a crouch, bind, set sort of referee. But I want time before the crouch because I can't roll through that and start the scrum until I know everyone's where they need to be. And that comes from a principle that we use, which is blow the whistle, then stop, and then think about it. And I think for comms professionals working in this environment, we've, we've all picked up on the fact that it's highly environmental, and there's a lot of stitching together to do before you go live because you all know that the workforce aren't stupid. They will see through a leadership that are trying to sell them something that is based on sugarly ground. So there's something there in terms of adding value at both ends of the process. You know, Telling the top of the shop what they can and can't have and then thinking about the channels through which you can deliver it. I absolutely take all that. And I think it's about, and that prioritisation, that burnout, and all this kind of feedback internal communicators are getting from employees. It's too much, it's too this. And it's because we're probably being too yes people rather than really thinking about that. But I just wanted to pick up on something from your perspective and your career that you just talked about there was this topic of alignment. And this is something that I think worries me or what I think is a barrier to us being really effective in this space, is do you really think that the internal comms, HR, external comms, the nature and all that, do you think, do you, I worry there's misalignment there. So if that's not 
stitched together, as you say, how can we then make sure everything that goes out gets the outcomes that we're all trying to achieve? Do you think there's more work we need to do to work on how actually as a centralised group, we're perhaps aligning ourselves better? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's the role of leaders. And to the extent that leaders in businesses are thinking more about their workforce strategies, the activity that they should be engaged in is working through how do we get that alignment and how do we how do we not boil the ocean? How do we try and achieve a few things really well and communicate with consistency so that it's not this message this month, that message next month, and that the messages feel instrumental to the people who are reading them? Because one of the, the criticisms of HR would be the you know the principle of HRM is if we beat you over the head with the company song enough times, eventually you you'll align with the corporate values. I mean, I'm being facetious, but not that facetious. And some of this is about not leaving professions to operate in, independently. Um, my criticism of the C-suite would be that for too long HR has been seen as something HR does. Now. If you've got a chief executive who can talk with authority about their component supply chain and their supplier relationships, but can't do the same about their people, I wonder whether that is really sustainable in the long term. So there's something there about, I think, getting getting the center more engaged on people issues and then using that as the stitching together. You know, the... Corporate governance changes that were made in the uh, 1990s were very valuable in as much as they cleared out kind of any risk of cronyism by giving us a non-exec majority on boards. But the exec jobs are the FD and the chief exec that are on boards, which means chief execs are largely ex-FDs because that's how you get onto boards. That is one way of thinking. And increasingly what we're seeing from non-execs is non-execs pushing the people side more. And and I do think there's something there about how, how do we deal with the people side, not as a function, but as a critical part of the production of the organization, at which point suddenly it becomes important for exec directors to be in the room. It becomes important for HR, internal comms, other critical functions to be brought together. And I think that push is is important for professionals in you know, both my field and yours. Building on that, and I guess to, to bring us into a reluctant land, listening to what you've said as an internal communicator, the one thing that's really stuck out, I think, has been the need for conversation. You talked earlier about aligning corporate vision and goals and purpose with those of the individual that takes conversation i love the stuff about the technology the fact that technology needs to be the transition of technology needs to be considered that involves conversation and of course there's also understanding what people's real issues are going back to your i want to have breakfast with my children uh, rather than scrabble for a parking space understanding that is about conversation so that was the one thing i took from it but but going back to you to finish off please as an internal communication professional and that's what many of our listeners are what one thing do you think we should be taking from what you've discussed in this episode? I think not to take just a brief from on high, but to find the space to shape that brief effectively and to make sure that it's intelligent to the environment that you're operating in. 
because that way it will land much more effectively with people. And, you know, you will find in people colleagues, HR colleagues, in recruitment colleagues who are looking out to the to the labor market, you will find collaborators there. So that, that thing about having the confidence to take space to get it right before we start, it just gets more and more important as the world becomes more and more complex. You know, one of the things that I've learned in uh, shockingly 20 years in senior roles in membership organizations with a public face is often the right decision is not to do anything. I'll give you an example. Sometimes you need to step back and let the debate play out and step in at the right moment. We've had that with healthcare uh, staffing over the Christmas period where the REC's work was quite quiet for a while and then we had to step in and we did step in. On the flip side, sometimes you have to step in because there's a teachable moment and when the government chose to allow agency workers to replace striking workers last summer. We were very big and very bold. But some of that is about, I'm terrible for linking my work from Monday to Friday with my refereeing on Saturday and Sunday. Some of that is about blowing the whistle, stopping, thinking, what are my options? And the way to do it, I'm going to quote Jane Haynes, who's one of my colleagues on ACAS Council. I always quote her by name because it's her uh, thing. But if you think about decisions that you might have to make, there are actually three potential options. Number one is decisions we know we have to make, and actually we need to make them now. Number two is decisions we know we have to make, but actually we don't have to make them now. And it might be better to work out how we'll make the decision as and when we will. And then the third one is decisions we might have to make, but we don't know whether we may need to make them. And injecting that kind of thought process into everything you're doing just helps you work out how to land things. And Jane said that to me about a year ago. And if of all the thoughts that have influenced how I've run the REC in the last year, that one is the most important one. Well, that's a fantastic place to finish because I think for a profession that's, uh, if you listen to people in a profession, often feel they get rushed into doing things and have to make very quick decisions and often feel they have to be more reactive than they'd like to be. I think reminding us about taking stock, taking space and thinking about what decisions you have to make is very helpful. Thank you so much, Neil. And as the chief exec myself of an institute, I will take that advice. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode. If you have, please like it and share it with your friends and colleagues on your preferred digital channels. Every recommendation helps us spread the word to build a better, more connected and inclusive future of work. Thanks for listening.